and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Nate Boyer is a bit of a renaissance man. He has worn many different hats. He's a former active duty Green Beret. He's a world traveler. He's involved with philanthropy and started his own nonprofit. He's a community leader. He played in the NFL as a professional athlete with the Seattle Seahawks. Uh, and a little bit about his background. So he joined the U.S. Army in 2005, where he earned the coveted Green Beret in December of 2006. He's going to talk a bit about his journey to the military. And what he did in the military is certainly enough for a podcast on its own. But what he did afterwards is also just as interesting. So he finished up his tours um, in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and then decided that he wanted to become a long snapper. And if you're unfamiliar with what a long snapper does in football, they're the ones that hike the ball to the kickers and the punters. Um, so he had a five-year 
career with the Texas Longhorns. So he went to NCAA football and decided to become a long snapper. When I say decided, he learned and taught himself how to become a long snapper by watching YouTube clips. He actually didn't even play football in high school. So that gives you a sense of his spirit, of his entrepreneurial nature, of his desire to be disruptive. And really at his core, he is a dreamer. He's someone who puts his eyes on a vision and he gets after it. And that is, I think, what really makes him unique as an individual. And it helped him have a successful college career. He won accolades. He was an academic All-American. He was named the Big 12 Sportsman of the Year in 2012 in the 2013 season. And obviously, it led to him getting a shot to play in the NFL with the Seattle Seahawks. And once again, we could just focus on that. And we actually don't talk about his career as a long snapper. But what he's doing today is probably just as inspiring as his past. So he has a new movie out called MVP that I'd highly recommend you check out. He has a nonprofit that brings together vets and athletes as well. And he really loves to play at the intersection of different identities and different people. And he is an adventurer. He is someone who has climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, He's gone fly fishing in Russia. He's worked as a big brother mentor for children diagnosed with autism. This guy doesn't really sit still. And I think you're going to get a sense of that Uh, throughout our conversation today. He is a dreamer, and so I'm excited for Nate to share what he's up to today, his acting and directing career, along with all of his other passions. So here is Nate Boyer. Nate, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, I was telling you before we hit record that I love people that have multiple identities, that have complexity of experience, and you certainly check those boxes. Uh, and so we could start this in in a multitude of directions, but I thought we'd start with probably what's top of mind for you, which is acting, directing, being involved in film. So can you tell us a bit about your history in film? When did it begin? And what's that been like for you as you get this movie out to the world? Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Brian. You know, it, it started at 19, right? At least the interest. Um, growing up, I think everybody loves movies. Like it's like pizza, you know, everybody loves them um, at some level, but as far as working on them and eventually making them, um, it was something that I I remember being 19 years old. I was living in San Diego, working on a fishing boat, um, doing some other odd jobs, just trying, nothing really sparked inside of me yet of like, who do I want to be? What do I want to do? You know, I, I wasn't going to college because it didn't make sense for me at the time. I just didn't even know, what I would study. And, and of course there's an argument there from people. It's like, well, it doesn't matter just going, you can discover that along the path. And I get that. Um, but you talk about being intentional. Um, I, you know, I'm the type of person that, uh, is very intentional about where I want to put my time, you know, and, and how I want to invest in certain things and time is the most valuable asset. And I think at 19, I even sort of, I don't know if I fully recognize that, but it mattered to me. And uh, so at 19, I, I all of a sudden became interested in in storytelling and, and filmmaking. And so I moved from San Diego to Los Angeles and starting out, um, you know, I took some acting classes and I was looking at film schools and kind of trying to figure out, is this something I'm going to do? Um, a year after that is when 9-11 happened. And, you know, I didn't join the military right away, but it definitely sort of shifted me off that filmmaking course. 
So I didn't circle back on it until six years ago at the age of 35, um, after the military and after football had ended, um, it was like, what do I do now? What's my new identity? And I still had that passion and desire to pursue filmmaking. So it really started there. I did an internship uh, with Peter Berg, who directed Friday Night Lights and Lone Survivor and has you know, made a lot of other great projects over the years. And I just was making coffee and you know, listening in on phone calls when I was allowed and uh, uh, stuff like that, you know, just doing your typical intern stuff. Uh, just to finish my master's degree. And, and that kind of started the process and the journey of, uh, of you know, becoming uh, at least a, a pursuing filmmaker. I don't want to say I'm a filmmaker yet. I don't know. Uh, I have made a movie, but uh, it still feels like, you know, I'm not quite, maybe, maybe I can call myself that next year. We'll see how it does first. How about that? It's interesting. I had Annie Duke on the podcast recently and she had already written a best-selling book and she has another book out right now that I think is doing quite well. And I could tell, I was like, she still doesn't think of herself as an author. And I, I said to her, I'm like, you know, you're a damn good writer. Right. And she's like, oh, I'm still like a work in progress. Do you think we ever like really arrive in that way? Like, I mean, you played in the NFL, you know, you were right. in the military, like when you were along the way, like, I don't know how you think about like soldier football player when you were in it, did you ever think of yourself as that? Or is that something that you think of maybe upon reflection? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think, cause I still feel that way. I think it's an imp imposter syndrome is a common thing. And I think it's actually very common in people that uh, are either quite accomplished or at least um, very hardworking, you know, put a lot of effort and, energy and sacrifice a lot of time uh to to attempt uh something because we all called it we we think of ourselves as oh well, i'm trying to do this i'm trying to be a filmmaker like your last guest she's trying to be an author but it's like no she's an author you know and and i have people tell me that so so often in my life they're like dude you, you did it like you are that you know you you were an nfl player i know you only played one preseason game and you got cut and all this stuff but like you were there you know and you uh, you are a veteran, like you went overseas, you deployed three times. And for me, I'm always like, yeah, but this guy, this other guy, look at his story and look at all the things like that he did. And I mean, he's a hero and I don't feel, I don't see myself as that. And they're just like, dude, <laughs> you got to cut that out. And it's really hard to do. Uh, obviously I'm still struggling with it as I talk to you here. Um, just really believing that you are, you are this, this, this thing, you know, this, this type of, this person that has, done that i mean labeling myself in that way um it's not a negative label but it's still hard to it's hard to like accept it i guess there is an old adage and i forget who said it but comparison is a thief of joy when you hear that quote what what yes yeah, you nod your head like what's your thought on that no it resonates with me big time um because that's it's so hard to to not do we want to compare everything in our lives to somebody else's experience or someone else where they're at you know, at my age, I was only here and this person's already there. And um, if I don't get to this benchmark by this time, uh, I'm going to be, uh, that's, uh, it's not going to work for me. It's going to be, a, it's going to be considered a failure because these other people did it. So like, why can't, why, why has it not worked out for me yet? And I think that it's a really dangerous place to be, obviously it's tough, um, you know, but, uh, but also it's, it's just, it's common. You know, my dad's about to walk into the screen real quick, by the way. That's okay. um, <laughs> Hi, dad. <laughs> yeah. 
All right, clear, clear frame. It's yeah. okay. Dad, you can let him know we're not using video, so it doesn't even matter. Is, oh, is your dad traveling? Is he traveling a lot with you for the movie and, and part of sort of the journey here? Yeah, well, he came out, he came out specifically here to Dallas. Uh, we're gonna we have an opportunity tonight to uh, to screen the film up at the star uh, with the cowboys. And uh his sister lives here in town as well, so her family's here. And um, yeah, so he, this was the, he's, he's already, he came to the premiere with my, my, my entire family came to the premiere, which was really cool. Um, when we screened the movie, uh, in, uh, in Los Angeles a couple of months ago, but yeah, it was just a, an opportunity to come out here, see some family. He'd never been up to the star. It's a pretty, pretty spectacular place. And we, we spoke about it offline a little bit, but you know, it's, uh, uh, all the stuff up here is pretty first class when it comes to football. I mean, you get it. And it's the Cowboys, you know? but uh, it's, it'll be a cool experience for him. So I'm really, I'm really excited to have him here with me. If we could go back to 19 year old Nate and you said, I liked movies just like, I like pizza. Like I'm with you. I liked movies too. And if you were to talk to 19 year old Nate and say, Hey Nate, we're about to premiere the movie that I directed and acted in, um, you know, with the Dallas Cowboys, uh, what would your 19 year old self say to you about, uh, accomplishing that? You know, this is, uh, this is, this is the problem that Nate has the 19 year old Nate, which is the same Nate that he wrestles with today would say you, your first movie you direct is not coming out until you're 41. Mm. Like that's, that's more than twice uh, the life I've already lived. Like that, that's not good. <laughs> you know what I mean? not understanding uh, the value of the journey and like all these other things that have happened. I think that's what 19 year old Nate would say. Um, I would hope that 19 year old Nate would also watch this movie and be like, Oh my gosh, like I had no idea. This was the world that you would be kind of wrapped up in, you know, because 19 year old Nate had no idea he was going to join the, the army and had no idea he'd, have this opportunity to play college football and, you know, and, and even have a shot at the NFL, like that 19 year old Nate would just not see, uh, you know, would not understand that would not be able to relate to that, but I, I would hope he would be inspired and then in some ways look forward to the future, even though it's quite a long road ahead. <laughs> you mentioned nine 11 happening and that sort of changing the trajectory of, of your life. And I've been blown away. We've had on, I think, over 300 people. And there are a lot of people that 9-11 changed the course of their life. I, I mean, we've had on people that were flight attendants who then went on to do improv. We've certainly had on people that have joined the military. I was just with someone the other day who was studying um, like journalism, and they ended up enlisting in the CIA after 9-11. And wow. it's just this moment that I think I don't want to compare the pandemic to 9-11 because I think that's not the point, but there are these like watershed moments that occur in society that I think change a lot of people's paths. So one, it's a movie idea for you. If you want, I know when I wrote a book, people were like, are you going to write another book? I'm like, can I just finish this one and like get this thing out? And it was like the most annoying question anyone would ask. It's like, are you going to write right, another right, one? I'm right. like, what do you mean? Like, what I, just, I just did this. Yeah. But movie idea for you. Like I've always been so curious about how 9-11 just changed lives, let alone the lives that, you know, people's 
loved ones died and, you know, it changed their lives in, in a really drastic way. But I think it changed people's lives, not just that they went in the military, like changed careers. It changed New York. It changed, it just changed how people saw the world. I think there'd be like an amazing movie to just see how like the lives of who's, how their lives were changed from this moment. Um, So that's one thing. But the question I'm really asking you is more about, your life. Do you think you would have gone into service if it weren't for 9-11? Um, like how did that watershed moment like shape how you're even sitting with us today? Yeah, I I I, I highly doubt that I would have joined the military. Um I I did definitely I had recruiters over to the house. A recruiter came to my house when I was uh, 17 years old. Right. And I invited him. I mean, he didn't just knock on the door because uh, I was interested in, and I'd thought about the military at the time. I mean, any idea I why, why that serious what, about it what, what uh, thought was even there? You know, it was just like, I think part of it was not really knowing what I wanted to do and not really being inspired to take the typical path, go to college right after high school, mostly because I had no idea what I wanted to study. I think, if I would have, for whatever reason, been interested in film at 16 instead of 19, I think I would have been like, oh, I'm going to go to, you know, I want to go study film at a, a college. You know, I want to go, if it was University of Texas, I grew up in the Bay Area, so it probably would have been a California school, but I would have been like, well, you know, I mean, USC is a great film school. It's very expensive. It's private. It's tough to get into, um, as many California schools are. But I think I would have sort of tried to maybe, you know, get into UCLA's film program or something like that. And that would have been the move, but that didn't come until later. And so it, it wasn't, it wasn't for me. So I just college wise, I just had no, no um, inkling of, <laughs> uh, and even an, of even a, a notion that this was going to be the thing for me um, after high school. So uh, it crossed my mind because it was like, well, what else are you going to do? You know, um, I ended up moving to San Diego and working on a fishing boat and, and took some firefighting classes, thought maybe that's what I wanted to do. It wasn't the right time for me to kind of grow up and take that on. But um, and at that point in my life, the military had completely gone. Like it was not a thought anymore. I was like, nah, I'm just not going to do that. I, I'm li living down in San, San Diego and I'm, I'm a, a around a bunch of these knucklehead Marine, young Marines and stuff like that. And I was like, I don't really know if I want to be a part of that. Uh, it's a different culture, you know? And, um, but I didn't know what I wanted. And I also probably didn't believe I would, I'd, I'd last, you know, or that I would, uh, be, be cut out for it. You know, I, I was, I was a decent athlete and I was always pretty hardworking when it came to sports. Um, but when it came to other disciplines, uh, not so much. And, and it was definitely always going upstream against the grain, not really, you know, standing in formation and marching to orders, <laughs> those kind of things didn't quite make sense to me. Uh, and, and so I, I think I would have, would, would, it wouldn't have been a, a good experience. I would, I would say, and 9-11 just shifted that because now we're not only were we attacked, but we're going to war. There's a lot of people who have a lot more to sacrifice than me that are signing up and joining like Pat Tillman's a great example. You know, that's a famous one um, who gave up for those that don't know, you know, he gave up a big NFL contract. He'd already played three or four years, I believe in the league for the Arizona Cardinals and um, passed up millions of dollars to go enlist and become a Ranger. 
And I think there were there was people that were leaving jobs on Wall Street and you know all kinds of things like that to join. Um, and I didn't join right away. It was three years after 9-11 that I, you know, that I seriously looked into it and, and started that process. But um it definitely got me thinking about it and sort of shifted my my thought of and just what is my place in the world and how can I be of service? How can I help? What can I do? Um and, and so, yeah, it was 9-11 kind of started that, got the wheels in motion. Although, like I said, I didn't, I didn't join for three years, you know. Would you have described yourself as lost uh, before yeah. you enlisted? <laughs> I would, I would. Um, and I still feel lost sometimes today. I mean, I think we all do. You know, we have those days when we're just like, what am I doing? Is this the path? Is this right? Like, as if there is a one thing you're supposed to be doing, you know, I don't know. I guess it depends on what your relationship with fate is um, and that belief, but, but yeah, I just, uh, I definitely, I definitely was, and I'm still hard on myself today, but I was really hard on myself. Then I was like, dude, you do not matter. Like you do nothing to help anybody else. You do nothing. You make no difference in the world. You are just sort of drifting along. And if you weren't here, Yes, people would be sad. Your family would miss you. They'd be sad. Some friends would miss you. But the world would keep spinning just fine. And it it wouldn't really have much of an effect. And everybody would move on with their lives and forget about you. And that's not a fun place to be. That's not a good thought to have. Um, do you still have do you still have those thoughts? That voice? I do. Yeah. I, I do. Yeah. I don't think that voice ever goes away. Um, it's just how you manage it and who you choose to listen to, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause there's a lot of voices in your head. There's positive ones too. Um, and it, it just, at that time, you know, I definitely leaned into the darkness a lot more than I should have. And I think, and I still struggle with that I, as people do. Um, that's, that's life. It's, it's, it's that constant battle. I think um, of, of feeling like we belong and feeling like we matter. And I, I, I definitely did not ever feel at that time in my life that I did, you know, and, and that was, uh, it's, it's a scary place to be. And I think honestly, before the military, when I, I went overseas and did some relief work in the Darfur, uh, just for a couple of months, but it completely changed my life. And, and, and it more than anything, yes, it gave me perspective and yes, I was, serving others and doing something that I'm very proud of, you know, and it was simple. I mean, I was playing soccer with the kids and helping pass out food rations and, you know, helping construct some of the, the, the refugee campsites and stuff like that. But nothing that I was doing, nothing special. Like anybody could do what I was doing, but I was, but I was there doing it, volunteering as many volunteer jobs are. It's pretty simple what you often do. Um, but it's just the fact that you're giving your time and what that did for me coming back home and why I kind of went straight to the recruiting office. And, you know, I wanted to, all of a sudden I wanted to be a green beret. I wanted to be in the special forces. It was like, I set out to do something that was not easy to do. There, there wasn't, I had no um, organization that I was deploying with over there. Uh, all the NGOs told me that I couldn't go because there's just all this red tape and I don't have a, 
you know, a a college degree and like special skills. And I'm just like, well, I'm not asking you to pay my way. I'll fly myself over there. I'm just going to, I'm just going to go and help. And I just want to be able to assist you guys in your mission. And because you're understaffed, I'm like reading about this. And and the answer was just no. And I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go. If I'm there, they have to accept help. And they did. And the fact that I just made it happen and I, I just went and I just said, forget what all this noise and people telling you that this is not the way, this is not, you know, the normal path, which it's not, it doesn't matter. Like just carve your own path and, and just go. And after that, it was like, it wasn't necessarily, I had the belief yet that I could do anything, but it certainly was like, I was giving myself reasons to believe in myself. And it was like, if you just try and put yourself out there, um, that's more than most people will ever do. <laughs> you know, a lot of people, they just talk themselves out of trying anything. Um, and they feel the same way that you do. They don't feel like they belong. They don't feel um, they have that imposter syndrome they deal with. That's great. Um, but that, that, I mean, that's totally normal. You just have to, you have to take, to take that step and kind of head in that direction. And, um, you know, the universe will sort of guide you in some ways and, and, uh, and people want, people want to help those who are willing to help, you know? So I think I understand how carving your own path leads to you going to university of Texas and learning how to be a long snapper and make into the NFL and launching a movie and starting a nonprofit. I, I understand the entrepreneurial spirit and how you have to go against the grain to use the phrase that you used. What I'm curious about is how going against the grain worked in the military. And like, how did you have the discipline, have the, I'm going to call it like coachability, whatever phrase you want to call it to get in line and play a role and, um, you know, follow orders, so to speak, while still maybe going against the grain and and carving your own path. Oh, that's a rephrase that I'm like, that's a hard question. I mean, that's, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think part of it, at least for joining the military was like the, the special forces motto is de oppressa liber, which means to free the oppressed. Right. So first of all, that, that model really spoke to me and that's why I kind of dug in more into what that looked like. And then when I learned that in the special, in the special forces, a lot of those missions, a lot of what you're doing is somewhat independent of the conventional army. And, and it is, you know, um, and that spoke to me, the fact that it's called unconventional warfare. I was like, well, that's me. I am unconventional. You know, I feel very unconventional. Um, I don't like anything that feels conventional. I resist. <laughs> and, uh, and that, uh, so that sort of, uh, spoke to me also the fact that we were at war and, there was a need and I was going to be able to go back to a, a pretty, pretty austere place and fight for those that can't fight for themselves, which I felt like I did on a very small level when I was in Darfur. Um, all of that sort of overpowered the, the doubts and the, the, the pieces of that military experience that I wasn't looking forward to. And at the end of the day, once I got out there, you know, even in basic training early on, I just sort of, I just sort of rolled with it, you know? And, and I think 
having some structure in my life, uh, I know having some structure in my life was a thing I didn't realize I needed until it was happening, <laughs> you know, until it was instilled in me. And I don't, you know, I'm not one of these people that even when I was in, I didn't, I didn't necessarily, I still was always kind of the outsider, you know, um, uh, sometimes, sometimes a class clown, sometimes the guy that's just riding that edge of, you know, causing a little bit of trouble. Um, but also the person that is very dedicated to being the best in his class, or at least trying to be, you know, trying to be the fastest, trying to be the first to complete something, uh, that competitive spirit that I grew up playing sports and, and sort of obtaining from that, um, served me at some level in the military at the same time i was learning the value in as admiral mccraven you know speaks on it making your bed in the morning right and it's something i still don't do every day <laughs> but the days that i do i know i never would do it if it wasn't for uh the military you know um I didn't do it much growing up <laughs> and, uh, and it was just one of those things. This is, this is what you do. And and they don't even tell you why, um, which is quite interesting. Uh, it's just like, this is how your locker needs to look. And this is how your bed needs. This is how you fold these hospital corners. And, you know, you're an idiot if you ask why, cause you're just going to get smoked, you know? So you just don't. Um, but you kind of, it kind of, uh, those things become self-evident over the years as to why, all those little details are important because when you are training and then when you are deployed um, overseas, like if you, if the right hand knows what the left hand is doing, when I say that, if Nate knows what the rest of his team is doing, because you guys have all done it this way, it is a safer environment, um, uh, but also a more efficient environment, you know, to operate in. And when you're talking about life and death, those are, those are very important things. Um, those little details, you know, not becoming complacent are very important. So that type of structure, although I still, I still, I still, uh, I still resist uh, conformity at, at all costs. You know, uh, that's just who I am. That's who, I'll, that's who Nate will always be. But Nate, the soldier, Nate, the veteran, um, he does approach things a little bit differently in his life now because of his time. In, in the in the military and it's just it's just so interesting it's something i never thought i would do growing up at all really like seriously thought i would do this and and now it's just such a part of me and um and i'm grateful for it it has taught me a ton and the, you know the best leaders in my life have been uh, those that i've met through that that process of serving my country what made them great leaders the the best ones were the ones that either didn't want to be leaders. Um, they were just sort of forced into that role or people just naturally followed them or the ones that, that were in that traditional leadership role because of rank or whatever are the ones that were willing to, yeah, they decide and delegate, um, but they don't disappear. There's a joke amongst officers, the three D's of uh, leadership decide delegate disappear right <laughs> but and it's and it's a joke because the disappearing part is uh and, and it's uh, sometimes there's value in that, you know and let your let your soldiers figure it out let them do it um but when it comes to cleaning up a mess and that can be you can 
translate that, interpret that however you want. Cleaning up a mess. Uh, they're the ones who decide and delegate who's doing what, how we're doing it. And they make sure and give themselves um, the dirtiest thing to clean, right? The toughest part of that job. And they, they're not shying away from that. They're getting down on their hands and knees like everybody else. Um, they're taking the smallest toothbrush to clean the, the grossest corner of whatever room we're in, right? Um, that kind of person. That's the person that I want to follow. Um, that they also they also lead with their words and with decision making and all those things. But those actions, um, they they definitely speak volumes. They speak louder. We say that all the time, just in life. But when it comes to leadership, that's the key for me. Like that's how I know I'm willing to go into battle with this guy and I'll follow his lead and take his orders. And you know, I, I trust him because I know he's looking out for his team first, not himself. I'm curious. Herself. I'm curious as we get into the film here you as a director and leading as a director compared to you as an actor. And one of the things that I've come to believe is that a great salesperson doesn't necessarily make a great sales manager. A great athlete doesn't necessarily make for a great coach. A great, you know, engineer doesn't necessarily make for a great engine, you know, manager of engineers or whatever they would call them, project manager. Right. right. For you being in it and working on it, what was that like for you to experience where you're in it as talent and as a lead, and then you're also working on it from a director standpoint? Oh man, it was, uh, it was certainly, certainly very, a lot more challenging than I realized it would be. Uh, you know, I, I, first of all, I, I've done, I've done some acting, you know, <clears throat> excuse me. I've done some acting, um, but I'd never played, I'd never been a lead role really. Right. So that was one piece of it. Um, behind the camera, I, I'd done some writing, I'd done some producing, but I'd never directed, right? And so that's another piece of it. And those two things converging and happening at the same time for the first time uh, was incredibly challenging. And I knew it was going to be hard, but I didn't know at what level. Because also, as a leader, something I struggle with and struggled with on this film is trusting people to do their job and letting go of not only the result, but letting go of this constant fear that you're screwing it up. You're not doing the story justice. You're making it, this is, this is a horrible project. This is, this is, uh, this movie's not going to work. You're not even going to be able to edit it. Like you're wasting everybody's time and what little money we had, you're still wasting it. Um, all those things running through my head, uh, trying to just shut those voices up. Those voices are valuable when I'm on camera because that's what this character is feeling <laughs> a lot of the time, right? But when I'm not and I'm behind it, they are not valuable. <laughs> those voices, you have to shut them off and get them out of the way. And that was that was a big challenge. Luckily, um, both behind and in front of the camera. I had some incredibly talented, hardworking people who were working for next to nothing because they just cared about this project. They cared about the story. They wanted to support me. They wanted to support MVP. And that's how we made it. And that's why I am proud of it now. Proud. Yeah, I am proud of it now because of the, I, I allow myself to enjoy it because I know how hard people um, worked on this and 
how much blood, sweat, and tear went into that. But then also when we finally got to show it to the audience that matters to us most, the veteran community, the former athlete community, and it resonated with them and they connected to it. Like that's the first time I exhaled really <laughs> from the beginning of the project, but it was, uh, it was just incredible, man. Like from, from my, my young DP, Logan Fulton, who's, I, he's like 27. He's a kid, right? Um, he's way more mature than I am in a lot of ways, but he's, he's incredibly talented, incredibly hardworking. And we just had a good, um, we have this rapport between us and kind of trust, even when we don't see eye to eye, eye to eye on things that we'll find a middle ground and figure it out. Right. And then every other department head were, were veterans, right? Um, every veteran portrayed on screen is played by a vet. Most of these athletes on screen are playing themselves or, um, or, uh, you know, another athlete that's, we're not on camera, by the way, dad, you're good. <laughs> another athlete um, that we'd sort of, uh, you know, made into like a composite character. Um, so it was just like from that authenticity standpoint and also um, the trust of like, they know this story as well as I do. Like, let it go. Like, let them let them run with it a bit. And if you need to, uh, you know, set some parameters and kind of pull people back in if they're going a bit astray <laughs> on their ideas and all that, then you can do that. But like, you don't need to micromanage. And that's, that's hard for me to do. And it's, uh, but I know what's, I know how much it sucks to be on the other end of that, to be micromanaged. It's not fun to not, if you're a creative person and you're not being allowed to create anything on your own, that's frustrating, you know? So these are the things I wrestled with. Um, I can't wait to do it again because I learned so many lessons. Um, I don't know if I would, direct and 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 play one of the lead roles again i i, I doubt that is uh in my future <laughs> at least anytime soon but um i enjoyed both parts of that i i i thought i thought being on screen with i mean was and sharing a lot of what i was sharing a lot of that's my own experience my own feelings and things i, I struggle with even though it's reflected through a character that's based on other people um and then from, you know, from the directing side, like, man, I just, I loved how creative we had to be with these, you know, budget limitations and trying to figure it out and find how can we, how can we portray this? We can't go shoot these war scenes and we can't shoot these flashbacks, but maybe we don't need them. Maybe it's better without them. Like, what can we do? How can this character relay this information to the audience and help and make them feel it? Um, without having to see it all, you know? So kind of went, you had, I, I went, speaking of going astray, I went astray on your question a bit there. No, if you had but, the uh, choice, <laughs> if you had the choice of, you know, you mentioned you're not going to do both again, most likely. If you had the choice, which one are you more drawn to directing or acting? I think directing. Um, I, I think directing. I, I, And the reason for that is not just, and it doesn't have to be always military stories, veteran stories, but I feel that oftentimes, um, as much as I love movies and they move me and motivate me, uh, oftentimes Hollywood doesn't tell the story in an authentic way, right? And I know it's hard. I know that even more so now, like you have to make sacrifices 
to make a movie. You know, the story cannot be exactly the way that it happened all the time. You have to make creative choices so that the the beats are the the beats are hit. You know, the moments are earned, and like all these things. Um, but it it is it, it was it was like it. The, the, a collaborative effort, um, but also like this ultimately creative effort of trying to, um, you know, untangle this knot and and figure that all out uh, in a in an authentic way. And and I think I think um, I'm just trying to be real careful here because I don't because I appreciate Hollywood. I really do. There's a lot of incredible people there that have helped me and are helping me even still today. But I think there's a lot of waste, you know, I saw it in the military too. There's a lot of waste. Sometimes it's financial, sometimes it's time. And sometimes it's just story-wise where it's like, we didn't have to do that. We don't have to always hit the audience over the head, you know, give them some credit. Like they're not, they're not as stupid as, uh, as they act <laughs> sometimes. Um, and those things bother me and frustrate me when I watch, when I watch films and, and you know, when I'm, when I'm, especially something that I enjoy quite a bit. If there's a moment, um, and I know there's moments like this in MVP, so I'm talking to myself too. If there's a moment where it's like, he didn't need to, he didn't, we didn't need to see that. We already know. We know what this person's thinking and feeling like that's just, and part of that's credit to the actor. Right. Um, but uh, I, I, I can't wait to, to, to direct it to another project. And, and from the veteran side, cause I have a, I do have a lot of things in the pipe that I'm working on that are, veteran related stories military related stories um just making sure we do the same thing like we did with mvp involve them from the beginning you know not just me like it's collaboration i can't do it alone um from the inception of the idea to writing it to um, producing and developing it to casting it to editing it you know, all that stuff like that's all very uh, important to make sure that you are involving the group the, the group of people that you're that you're telling the story about, having them involved, you know, no matter what that story is, so that they can tell you that's just not accurate or that would never happen or whatever. But if you need to show it, if I understand what you're trying to do here, if you need to show that, what about this way? What if we what if we kind of integrate your idea plus like making something more authentic, and then you you find a way to meet in the middle and figure it out? Like I, that whole process, I just I just love. I've become so interested at intersections. And mm -hmm. so I co-hosted a retreat with thought leaders, like best-selling authors, with sports leaders, mainly like general managers, some head coaches, presidents of teams. Right. Uh, like, like I'm working right now on a project that's going to bring blacks and Jews together. Uh, I just think there's something beautiful about when you bring together two different groups who seem different from an identity standpoint but actually have these intersections of similarities and there's something that happens when people if you just are with your group i think your your thinking is so limited it, you don't have as much range and you get into your own expertise and you don't always you're not always in a position to grow and learn I, i'm i think i'm preaching the choir here because 
your mission has been largely about bringing athletes and military people together to learn from each other, to inspire each other, but also to share similar identities that they may not have realized to inspire. I think of David Vabora, who I'm sure you're aware of. Oh, he's a great guy. Uh, they, yeah. Yeah. Like they, David's been on the podcast and, and, and in some ways what you're doing reminds me of, of how David thinks about things, but I could give you, know, you it's r- yeah, really quick, David, his, uh, Adaptive Training Foundation, as, you, as you're aware of, his the gym that he built in Carrollton, Texas. That's where we operate our MVP Dallas chapter awesome. at his gym. So he's a member. He's part of what we're what we're doing, and he's an incredible human being. And I think like the most inspiring people, they often are not just isolated in their identity or their world. They're finding ways to expand it and broaden it. Um, and to me, it's like, if you just bring two different people together, especially in our society today, where today was election day, uh, like we all go and not all, some of us go and we vote yeah. and maybe we vote along party lines and we just see this divide that exists. And I think most people would agree it's not necessarily a healthy, good thing that we continue to just have these this two-party system that's designed right. to divide us. And so anyone that I think is bringing together multiple identities and having them learn together, I get inspired and fired up by. Can you talk a bit about what you've witnessed with MVP, the organization, and like bring us into your space? And the hope here is to inspire others to continue to think this way. Because I think too often we get into our tribes and we just focus on our tribe, which by the way, nothing wrong with that. Like we need people that are going to do that. But I think if you can, if you can bring in a different tribe, it just, it, it expands the possibilities in such a tremendous way. So I think this is at the yeah. core of what you're about and what you're doing. So I'd love to get your perspective yeah. on why no, it's so I, valuable. I, I love intersections too. And what I love even more than intersection is uh, juxtaposition. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I, I, I love that. And that's more of a uh, use of quite a bit, in, I think, in, in projects that inspire me in film, right? Um, but not just in film, just in life. I, I love when, you know, you see two two people from completely different worlds that on paper have nothing in common come together and figure something out or recognize uh, something that, that they feel and experience in this other person that that could maybe have, there couldn't be anybody with less in common in the world, right? Um that stuff is is so interesting to me and that and that you know is 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 really uh mvp at its core uh the organization um you know we've been operating now as a charity since the, the end of 2015 so it's almost seven years now and when we first started even having this conversation jay glazer and i who i co-founded mvp with about bringing together combat vets and former professional athletes, you know, the biggest hesitation was me initially, because I was like, well, well, look, Jay, I, I understand the locker rooms are the same, you know, and like, I've had a lot of those similar conversations with vets and athletes. And, you know, of course the identity with the uniform, um, the, the sense of purpose and the team and the mission and the structure and all these things, they are very similar. But what I was um, always just fearful of, and and a lot of people still, I think when they first hear this idea, they're like, 
you're comparing war to football or what just happened like some football it was brady i think like mentioned something and then had to apologize for it and obviously the world we live in today it's like those apologies have to come quick um but yeah that's been used for years you're a warrior we're going to battle we're going to Mm -hmm. and you know i if you've ever been a locker room before you understand it and if you're not you understand it does sound kind of ridiculous and silly um, to compare the two, like I understand why someone would say it, and I understand why someone would be critical of of, of right. that terminology as well. Have you ever heard the George Carlin bit about that? It's no. pretty funny. It's really funny. But he just compares baseball to football, right? And in baseball, he's like, it's all about being safe, you know what I mean, <laughs> and coming home. Yeah. And in football, it's a ground attack and an aerial assault and like all these military terms, um, which is really interesting beyond, you know, what you're, you're speaking of, like, you know, from, from pop Warner coaches or when they fire their, their, uh, their kids up, it's like, we're going to battle, you know? Um, and it's, uh, it, it is, it is really, it is quite funny. I understand the value in it and it doesn't bother me. It never bothered me. These terms, um, of course, it bothers me if somebody actually does make the comparison. Um, and I think genuinely, you know, Tom wasn't comparing uh, war or in his mind. I, I don't think he was trying to compare war to football, but a deployment for those of us that have gone on a long deployment, even those in combat arms, there is, it is, it is a grind. You know what I mean? It's a grind. It's like, and you have to find your routines and it's hard to stay connected with people back home. And it's like, that's the thing. That's where I think he was trying to come from. It just didn't, he didn't flesh it out enough or it was taken out of context as the media does or whatever. Another conversation. But, um, you know, as far as MVP goes, that uh, was something that I resisted because at first, because I was like, we're going to get, you know, people are going to be uh, up in arms about this idea of like, you know, battlefield and ball field you know and and jay was like that's not we're gonna from the beginning everyone will understand very clearly that is not what we're talking about and that's not what we're doing we're not serving um a, a, a populace or a type of group of people or specifically an athlete that thinks um going to war and, and playing sports are the same and they and, and none of them really do none that i have ever met actually believe that right um but what we're talking about is that transition and is that that locker room and the the loss of uniform. And, you know, to be quite honest, in some ways, this is maybe a hot take too, in some ways, uh, it is more challenging for these athletes to, to step away because it's more times than not, it's not on their terms. It just ends. And it's like that. And you clean your locker out and you're gone you know, you're cut and you may never get a shot again. And like, that is tough. I mean, the average NFL career is three years, right? And that goes for every sport. We don't work with just football players, we work with all athletes. It is typically a short uh, uh, career lifespan, you know, in the military, I would say the average Joe that signs up at 18, 19 years old, probably signs up for four years um you know the average grunt that ends up in the infantry and all that stuff right but a lot of them go on to serve longer terms and re-enlist and maybe they serve 30 something years 
Uh, well, Nate, the difference that I think you just hit on that yeah. I that I never even thought of is it's a four year commitment. So they know the commitment and right. sort of what it's going to be at least. And then if they want to continue their opportunities to continue, whereas in sports, yes, they might sign a contract, uh, but that can be right. pulled away from them at any time. And, you know, they it, it's it's just a different dynamic in, in some ways as far as what that. What totally. That I mean, you're not walking around if you're a bubble guy <laughs> in the military and you're like, you know, maybe you're not the fastest or the best shooter or the best communicator or the, you know, you're not the best at your job. They're, they're going to find a place for you and you're going to be okay. And like, we'll figure that out. You're not walking around every day. Like, you know, is the, is the, is the Sergeant major going to fire, fire me today? Is he just going to trade me? me or cut me? Yeah. Trade me. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, and there are some, some instances where that stuff happens. If somebody's a liability, of course it is very rare, but it does happen, you know? And, and also if, if there are actions of becoming of what, who you're supposed to be and what you're supposed to be representing, then, you know, you you can be removed from the military. I mean, it's, there's there is situations, but it's very different. It's very different um, from the typical story. Like you do know when it's ending. What you don't know is what that transition is going to be like. What that experience is going to be like, and that is very similar with these vets and athletes. But you know, from that side of things, like that was that when we started MVP, that was something that I sort of resisted. But then once we started bringing these groups together, and you saw how much it meant to the vets that the athletes show up and are vulnerable and talk about their own struggles and how this guy that, you know, serves in the Marine Corps for four years, couple deployments, um, deals with survivor's guilt, deals with a lot of regret, um, came back home and, and, you know, didn't feel like he had a home, maybe fell on hard times. And then he, he's sitting in a room and he's listening and we replay this, we we recreate this in the film, this exact scene, really. Um, you hear Tony Gonzalez, 17-year uh, Hall of Fame career, one of the greatest tight ends, maybe the greatest tight end ever, um, who felt like, a, felt like he'd peaked and he'll never be great again just months after retiring. And he knows he's going to be in the Hall of Fame and have whatever broadcasting career he wants and all these opportunities and he still was like, I, this is like, this is not good. <laughs> I'm done, you know? And how really that's my, the phrase, like you're done. Think about yeah. that. Like this guy is done. <laughs> like, whoa, yeah. whoa, that's, that's a big, it's crazy. A big word. It's, it's a huge word. And, you know, and in Tony's situation, he was in his late thirties. I mean, a lot of these vets are in their and, and players are in their mid twenties or younger. And he's like, like he's at, he's like the most <laughs> he's had all the su successes right and and mm -hmm. to your point like what about the 24 year old who you know got cut after two years and doesn't have exactly. financial security and and doesn't have a broadcasting career that they can go to and i go back to that word lost uh or you and i have some stuff in common i was a lost puppy coming out of college like i had no idea what i wanted to do and i'm actually very grateful for it because at 22 and 23 it's actually a wonderful time to be lost um as opposed to 32 and 33 or 42 and 43 it allowed me to go discover and um so i don't think being lost is a bad thing even though we tend to say right. it is for you being lost led you to a a probably a purpose, a mission that is still impacting you in, in a really, really cool way. Um, right. 
as far as the movie goes, so you, you started painting these scenes. Um, first of all, the movie comes out November 11th. We are recording yep. this before then, but it'll be out uh, when we go live. Um, and that happens to be Veterans Day as well. I'm sure it's not an accident. Um, <laughs> not but, at all. But talk about what people are going to get from watching this movie and, and, and also your nonprofit. Talk about that a little bit more. If people want to get involved with the nonprofit, support it. Uh, what does that look like for them? And then obviously people that are going to watch the the film, like what are they going to walk away feeling from, from watching the film? Yeah. I mean, my hope for people walking away from the film is that they feel um, that they can relate in some way to that experience, to the experience of, of a veteran, um, you know, who, who lost a lot of people overseas and even more back home to suicide um, and feels like he doesn't belong and he doesn't matter and he shouldn't be here anymore um, and fighting through that. And, and also an, an, a former NFL player, first year out of the league who, you know, he, he played played several years. He was a first round draft pick and he was quite good and played very hard. He just dealt with a lot of injuries and dealt with, you know, trades and coaching changes and all these things that, in his eyes, he's he's a failure, you know, and he feels like he he's a bust. And this veteran feels that way too, you know. And through the story, you you learn about them as people, why they feel the way they feel. You learn about their past and their experiences before they were in the Marine Corps and before they were on the NFL field. Um, and I think it helps them be relatable as human beings because that's the biggest thing. That's the biggest takeaway I want people to walk away with and I want that to resonate with with people that at the end of the day we are all human beings uh we wear certain uniforms often that group us in a in, in a in a uh, and, and we're labeled in certain ways and sometimes we we adopt that label ourselves and we feel that that is our identity and who we are um but we're human beings just like you and all we want to do for the most part is feel like we do belong back here at home and moving on with the rest of our life. We want to be inspired again. We want to feel the things we felt when we had that team and we had that locker room and we had that sense of purpose and the mission mattered. And it felt like, man, I am necessary. You know, I am needed. Um, not feeling that, getting the opportunity to feel that and then to lose that feeling is really, really tough. If you never feel it, Maybe you're lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know. Uh, I would say probably not. But uh, in some ways, you know, if you have felt that in your life and then go through a phase where you don't anymore, um, I think parents feel that. You know, I think that uh, anybody who uh, has has earned an opportunity in a job um, that felt like they had a certain amount of responsibility that mattered and then that ended has, has felt that, you know. I think anybody, anybody's life, uh, we can all relate to those things. And we can all relate to pain too. I mean, we all deal with some amount of pain um, and loss and everybody struggles from time to time. And that is very normal. Post-traumatic stress is a very normal um, reaction to some extraordinary circumstances. And it's not, it shouldn't, to me, it shouldn't be called a disorder because if you don't feel the way you feel and are affected in some ways, by the experience that you had, then that's the disorder. <laughs> you know, if you were around some pretty 
traumatic events and you don't, and it doesn't stick with you and it doesn't sometimes keep you up and all that. That's not a disorder. Um, if you're dysfunctional in some way because of it, I guess I, I can understand that, but there's many of us that are diagnosed with this, including myself. And I don't feel like it's a disorder. I feel like it's a gift in some ways. I mean, I'm growing from it and I'm doing things because of that experience that I never would have tried to do. And I'm trying to honor those people that didn't make it back and, and those that we've lost. Uh, and that fuel, that motivation comes from there, from them, you know, in those places. And so I think what really matters to me is that from the film aspect, I hope people are inspired uh, to go chase their American dreams, whatever that looks like. And, and understand that these vets and athletes um, that are part of MVP and, and the ones that aren't like, we're just like you too. And, you know, we feel a lot of the same things and you can relate to us and you can talk to us and maybe that's all we need. Um, and from the MVP side of the organization, merging vets and players, um, first of all, the, the website is vetsandplayers.org for those that want to check it out and learn more about us. But um I'm just, I'm excited for this film, giving it an opportunity to, for, for more people to see and experience who we are. Because if you're not a combat vet or a former pro athlete, you can't come to one of our huddles and be a part of that experience. It's just, it's just for these guys and girls. Um, and I want you to understand what, the conversations that we have. And I want you to be able to feel that and relate to that. Um, because they're quite normal conversations, you know, um, it's just a lot of these, these folks, they feel a little more comfortable opening up when they're in a room with people that have experienced what they've experienced and kind of feel a similar thing. So, I mean, that's my biggest hopes with both of those, um, that people, that MVP, the organization is able to grow from this film. Um, but also people walk away from it, learning something a little bit different, kind of having a different perspective on what, uh, our experience is. Well, congratulations on the film. I'm excited to check it out. And I'm excited to also learn more about what you all are doing with, you know, vets and players. And as I said earlier, I think anything that brings together different people um, excites me. Um, my last question, and then we'll wrap here, is from an identity standpoint, how do you, what do you consider your identity to be? Human being. <laughs> I'm a human being. Um, I think I've already sort of, carved out quite a few different paths and uh, pursued a lot of different things. And I know I'm going to continue to do that because that just excites me. It's, it's, it makes me feel alive. Um, I'm interested in a lot of things. There's no reason to not, uh, to not go experience those things or at least try to. Um, so I, I'm, I'm just, I'm literally, I'm, I am a human being just like you. Uh, and we say it in the movie, and I've already said it twice on this podcast, but it is so true. Uh, and I'm not just speaking to you, Brian, I'm speaking to everybody listening, you know, uh, that's, that's who I am. And like, I'm full of fault and uh, uh, I've failed way more than I've succeeded. That's absolutely true. Uh, and I'm going to keep failing. <laughs> I'm going to keep failing forward, but I'm going to keep failing. Um, and I, I, uh, you know, I just, that's how I want to be. Be that's how I want to be remembered. I don't want to be remembered as uh, a veteran or an athlete or a filmmaker or uh, whatever I end up doing next. 
I want to just be remembered as Nate. Um, definitely a unique soul, uh, as we all are. And, you know, someone that, someone that just tried, you know, they could put that on my headstone, a human being, he tried <laughs> and I take it. I'm happy with that. I mean, cause the effort is what inspires me most in life. When I see it from other people, when I see it out of myself, I, I can be proud of the effort that I give and what I try to do every day. So, um, I appreciate that, but, uh, yeah, human being, that's all. Yeah. I'm going to add one addendum to your tombstone, <laughs> which is he dreamed and he tried. And uh, when I hear you, I hear someone who dreams and you don't just sit there and dream. You then go and act, whether it's, you know, joining the military and not just joining the military, but becoming a green beret. It's not just, I want to become a long snapper, which we didn't even talk about in this hour, which is kind of a ridiculous story. I think ridiculous <laughs> is a good word. Um, someone, I don't think you didn't even play like high school football and then, you decide, oh, I'm going to watch YouTube clips and become a long snapper. And I'm going to walk on at 29 to University of Texas. And then I'm going to find my way to the Seattle Seahawks. Like, but that takes dreams, right? And then it takes discipline and action. And then it's like, all right, well, now I want to become an actor. And well, I didn't go to USC film school and I didn't even act in high school. Um, and now I want to direct, right? So there's a, there is a dreamer in you. And then I love that you dream and then you don't just sit there talking to everybody about your dreams. You go and you go do. And that's the tried piece that I think you're talking about. But I wouldn't minimize the dreaming because a lot of people are afraid to dream, number one. And then a lot of people are afraid to try their dream. And so that to me is inspiring. And that's why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And uh, so if people want to find out more about you in the movie, I know on social media, I think you're at Nate Boyer 37. Um, if people yeah. want to learn more about the foundation, you already plug that. Um, anything else we want to plug or anything else we want to direct people to as it relates to you, your work and, and, and all the great work you all are doing at MVP. Oh, I appreciate that, Brian. I think, and I, and I, I definitely am a dreamer. I definitely am a dreamer first and foremost. Like that is, that's true. Uh, ever since I was a kid, uh, big day dreamer. We all dream at night, but uh, I dream in the day uh, more than most, I would say. And you know, as far as the as far as MVP goes, uh, first of all, the the website for the organization is vetsandplayers.org. Uh, so go check us out if you have veterans or athletes that you think would resonate with this organization, um, connect them with us, you know, Sh share MVP with them. Um, and if you want to help in other ways, whether it's donating or throwing an event or figuring out a way to help us expand and grow, reach out to us. Uh, and we'd love to have that conversation. As far as the movie goes, you know, uh, Veterans Day, uh, it's available everywhere on app, Apple TV, Amazon Prime, um, and other places as well. Uh, so it'll be, it'll, it, it's video on demand um, for now. Uh, down the road, hopefully around the Super Bowl timeframe, uh, we're working on um, some other places that will be available, um, you know, some, some uh, streamers that are interested in licensing it and all that stuff. So it'll be uh, even uh, continue to be able to watch forever. But, you know, for now, I really encourage people to to go watch the film as soon as you can. Um, it's called MVP. Uh, and it is uh, a really important project to, to a lot of people uh, and to the organization. And I think uh, at least so far, 
the way it's resonated with the veterans and athletes that have seen it, um, it, it it's making a difference. And I can be very proud of that and, and grateful and, and not feel like an imposter uh, when it comes to, to this result. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for you having me on brother. I appreciate everything you're doing. And um, yeah, this has been awesome. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, we'll try to set something up in Washington, DC, which is a, probably a good place to bring together some place. vets and athletes and it's my backyard and happen to know a good amount of vets and athletes um, in, in large part because of this podcast we've had on a lot of vets and, and certainly a lot of athletes. Um, so uh, here to help and uh, also excited to pop some popcorn and, and watch it on my, on my couch with my wife. And, um, and so we'll, we'll talk about how to do that. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, and you can listen to all these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Nate, thank you for everything you're doing. This is inspiring stuff. Certainly I'm uh, inspired at least for the rest of my day. And <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure beyond that and uh, keep dreaming and keep doing and, um, if I can be helpful in any way, feel free to reach out. Thank you, my man. means a lot. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. That's the biggest thing. That's the biggest takeaway I want people to walk away with. I want that to resonate with, with people that at the end of the day, we are all human beings. Uh, we wear certain uniforms often that group us in a in, in a, in a uh, and, and we're labeled in certain ways. And sometimes we we adopt that label ourselves and we feel that that is our identity and who we are. Um, but we're human beings just like you. And all we want to do for the most part is feel like we do belong back here at home and moving on with the rest of our life. We want to be inspired again. We want to feel the things we felt when we had that team and we had that locker room and we had that sense of purpose and the mission mattered and it felt like, man, I am necessary. You know, I am needed 